What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. My name is Mark Bickney. I'm the Prophet of Rage. I'm here to talk about board games. With me always is a special guest, the same guest we have every week, who is also here to talk about board games, the hype machine, Michael Walker. How are you doing, Walker? Fantastic, Mark. How are you today? I'm very, very well, because we get to talk about board games. We're going to talk about the games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And our feature game this week is Stroganov with a special introductory segment talking about all the terrible puns that we've been subjected to while playing Stroganov. Don't worry, you'll have guest stars at that time. So, with that in mind, Walker, what did you play last week? Mark, we got to play a game from, new game from Minor Credencia called San Francisco. This was a review copy provided to us by the publisher, Rebel Studio. And I wanted to like this game, Mark. We've played it a couple times now. What you're doing in San Francisco is you're doing Colorado, Zuloretto style. You're drawing cards and you're putting them into rows or you're taking one of those rows and putting it onto your player board. You're trying to make the best player board. It's got this interesting system with contracts, like you can't take a row unless you have uh, less contracts than the number of cards in the row. Yeah, every time you take a row of cards, you take a contract. And you're not allowed to take a row unless there are more cards on the row than you have contracts. So you take any number of cards, you have a contract, and now that means the next contract row you have to take has to be at least two cards. So it limits your flexibility in taking them. If you have two contracts, you have to take at least three cards. And so that gives a lot of the other players flexibility in terms of how they can slot the cards into the, the card rows to make sure that you can't draft the things that you potentially want at that time. So there's a lot of cool things going on, but unfortunately that particular mechanism doesn't flush out very well and you're ending up with not very much decision and you're usually feeding the next player cards that they can really use and it usually snowballs into one person running away. At least that's our initial or my initial 
observation from what the few games we've played. Yeah, I was intrigued by this prospect. I thought that it was possibly an interesting spin on Colorado. The problem is, is that it takes a lot of the teeth out of Colorado. There is an incentive in San Francisco to draft cards quickly. And point of fact, very seldom is it the case that there's a card in the row that you desperately don't want. Now, in those cases, first of all, you can just discard the card entirely. And it's usually a function of the sort of tableau building you're doing, which is nominally kind of a tiling situation of building out San Francisco. And those parts are potentially cool. And that's an aspect that, that Colorado doesn't have. But as it happens, as you say, the dynamics of the card draft don't flesh out in a very satisfying way. I think they exacerbate issues with turn order. And on top of that, the deck of cards, which is a very, very massive stack, you're very much at the mercy about what comes up when. It could just be the case that on those moments where you have advantage and can draft anything, nothing advantageous comes up. Meanwhile, on those other times when you're f- full of contracts and can't take anything, card after card comes up that is exactly what the next player clockwise to you needs, or a couple rounds clockwise yeah i thought there would be a couple cases where you'd be able to sort of set yourself up because everyone else has a contract and it's like okay well they can't take any cards because you know they have to wait till there's two so you know you sort of put two in a row and then but then the next person's going to go and they're going to you know either play on that same row or they're going to mess it up is what they're going to do and like you said it doesn't flesh out but there's other cool things like you're there's playing when you take a row, you play all the cards onto your board, and there's all sorts of things that can trigger bonuses that you put extra stuff on your map. All sorts of different things. You're doing this uh, train system through your little tableau. There are some good things, but... Yeah, the light city building actually is far more satisfying than the drafting, which is exactly the opposite of what I thought was going to happen. As it is, I'd much rather play Colorado. Colorado has teeth. Colorado has angst. Colorado has difficult decisions. As it is, I keep saying Colorado. (laughs) Colorado and San Francisco. No, Colorado. And ultimately, I agree with you. Conceptually, the variation on the drafting is fascinating. In practice, it just doesn't feel satisfying. Agreed. That was San Francisco, Reiner Knizia, and Rebel Studio. Played a game of Cash and Guns 2nd Edition on the topic of clever but doesn't really flesh out. Uh, First of all, let us resurrect the fan favorite featurette, component reviews by an 11-year-old. 11-year-old says, this is the artwork of John Kavalik, who did the second edition. 11-year-old says, it looks like a three-year-old drew shapes, and then had a professional artist help them out. Interesting. I think that nails it in one, quite frankly. Uh, Whether you regard that as a positive review or a negative review, that is up to you. I don't speak fluent 11-year-old, but uh, I think it captures some of the essence of Kavalik's work. Anyway, Cash and Guns 2nd Edition is the board game version of Reservoir Dogs, but it is stripped of the more blatant Reservoir Dogs references of 1st Edition. There's no longer the possibility of a traitor cop, which I thought was one of the cooler editions in the, the, the first version of Cash and Guns. But in all versions of Cash and Guns, I've always wanted to like it more than I actually do. Those moments Moments of tense decision-making, you know, you've got a couple guns pointed at you, but there's a lot of money at the table, and you have to decide whether you want to stay in, and you really feel that tension. I I honestly feel that doesn't manifest frequently enough. Very, very frequently it's the case that just it so happens nobody pointed a gun at you, and so you can just walk away with cash, and or, again, turn order issues rear their head, and or so many guns are pointed at you that it's just a no-brainer, you might as well bow out. And so ultimately I don't feel, indeed, the tension that one ought to have when having a foam fire firearm pointed at your face. 
I'll happily play it. And I gave the first edition a lot of chances, and I played the second edition a couple of times as well. But as far as silly party games go, I think there are other ones that actually manifest on their on their promise. And you're going to get far more tension out of most social deduction games or games of that ilk anyway. So Cash and Gun 2nd Edition is a fine distraction, and those fun guns are lovely. As somebody who's, who appreciates the aesthetics, albeit not the functionality of firearms, that, that part very much still appeals. But ultimately, I always end up walking away from Cash and Gun 2nd Edition feeling kind of disappointed and, and feeling that the awesome premise wasn't fully realized. I need to play it at least once. I've never played either version. You've never played any cash or any or guns. A gun. Wow. No cash, no gun. Well then. Does Tango in cash? Does that count? <laughs> Different idea. Gotcha. That is Cash and Gun, second edition by Ludovic Moblin, published by Repo Production. Mark, I got to play Carnegie again. This is by Xavier Georges and uh, put out by Quinted Games. I'm enjoying this more and more every time I play it. It really is one of the one of the best games that have come out this year. I like it because I played it with all new players and seeing them uh, show how the different buildings work and how you go up the tracks differently than than you normally would. Like uh, one of the players just went right up one track, very first turn, cleared the track in one go, huh. took the bonus at the end. And it really turned the game in a different direction because you could see that he was probably going to do that every chance he got and you had better grab the ends of the other tracks before he did. So it really steered the game in different directions. Plus, like I said, the buildings, the different buildings, people, the, you know, because they didn't know, you know, people say, oh, this is the strategy. You got to get this building or you need this kind of Yes, resource. people, not us. Not us. I would never do that just for this, just for this exact case. Absolutely. You know, because people will try out different things. They think things are, and I think some of the buildings really did shine more than the ones that people usually take all the time. Carnegie is rapidly proving to be my pokeroo. It, it's true. I missed it again. It, it does exist. I assure you. <laughs> and that's Carnegie. So on the topic of games that actually do manifest their premise, I got to play Vengeance. I decided to sit down for some solo gaming, and Vengeance by Gordon Kalea is one of my favorite solo games. And the thematic elements really shine in Vengeance, because we've been talking about Vengeance Roll and Fight. It's definitely my favorite Roll and Write, but thematically I think it suffers when in comparison to its bigger brother. And honestly, the, the additional thematic elements on top when you're playing the solo game, for example, I was playing a character who needed to rescue people who'd been abducted by local gangs. And so there was this very, very simple but satisfying rescue requirement on top of clearing out and engaging in massive quantities of murder to right the wrongs that had been inflicted on me. And I had a grand time. It's been too long since I played Vengeance. I need to play it more often. The problem is, as I say, it really thrives in solitaire configuration and or in a small number of players who are willing to really accept the fact that it feels far more like a co-op than it actually is. And I have to say, I, I'm really appreciating more on this later, the way that Gordon Kalea can sort of frame small combat encounters and have really satisfying and interesting sort of tactical puzzles for really discreet and easy to set up and easy to resolve little combat encounters. So somewhere between just a simple combat role and a full blown out tactical combat experience that, that involves the full game. I really think that's really well done. And I get that same sense of satisfaction, both from vengeance and from vengeance role and fight. But again, as I say, the thematic execution of vengeance remains almost unparalleled in terms of my entire collection. And I actually was reflecting on something while appreciating the graphic design and the artwork of vengeance. I don't think I can think of a board game cover that I like more than the cover of vengeance. So I'm going to have to go back to vengeance again soon. Thoroughly enjoyable. Gordon Kalea and Mighty Boards published in 2018. 
in the theme of roll and rights, I like dungeon scrawlers, so I picked up another couple of roll and rights based off of dungeons and introduced them both to Mark. The first one is Dungeons and Dragons Dungeon Scrawlers, Heroes of the Undermountain. Well, it's not a roll and write. This is a, a scrawl and it's uh, just a, a scrawl. Write, a write and write. Yeah, a scrawl, then scrawl some more, or write and then write some more, yeah. It's true. This is put out by WizKids and designed by Vangelis Bagirtakis and Constantinos Karagenis. So what you're doing is there are all sorts of different dungeons that come in the box, and they are all on laminated paper, and you get your dry erase marker, and a lot of them are different. It's either whoever kills the boss first, or it's timed, or different endgame conditions. The one we played were was uh, three dungeons, whoever kills the boss first, and you're done. So you're quickly going through this maze with your with your pen. You're crossing off flowers or mushrooms or doing spells or getting rune stones or doing all sorts of different things, and you're trying to get the most points until it's time to stop. I loved... Dungeon Scrollers, Heroes of Underbound. I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. I want to play more. Here's the thing. Uh, so it, it has no relationship to a roll and write, but the thing is that roll and writes tend to be brutally calculational. And I don't really tend to enjoy brutally calculational games, especially when they're relatively simple. It's like, oh, okay, well, this will give me one point. This will give me a point and a half. This will give me three points, but only if I get all three of these things in a row. Okay, fine. And the the time pressure, because that's the only player interaction that exists in Dungeon Scrawlers. And and for what it's worth, if you're going to do multiplayer solitaire and you're going to try to, on, on the back end, make it interactive by virtue of time pressure, that's my preferred way to do it. It just makes me feel like there's more tension involved. It makes me feel like I'm in a race even when I'm not. And I really enjoyed zipping through, and it's it's kind of a dexterity game a bit because you're not supposed to clip walls too much or you have to be careful about coloring things all the way through the lines. I enjoyed this game so much. I thought I had so much fun racing around, trying to like trying to manage the myopia, the sort of tunnel vision of okay, where am I going? I don't know. Here's a way through. Like <laughs> trying to get from point A to point B, never feeling like I really had the opportunity to look back and evaluate the maze. It worked out okay, but really it was just such a madcap frenetic experience of coloring in as quick, quickly as possible. Ugh. Not not exactly the deepest thing in the world. In fact, probably the lightest thing I've played in a very, very, very long time. I thoroughly enjoyed Dungeon Scrollers. And I like the fact that we played with the characters. So you can take these character cards, which let you do something special that the other person doesn't get to do. And they're all very clever. Probably not balanced. No. Very satisfying. <laughs> Just a fun, silly, quick game. And the other one is published by Elite Games. They didn't think D&D was enough. They needed DD and D. Dungeons, Dice, and Danger. This was the Richard Garfield game. So when I learned that Richard Garfield did a roll and write, I thought we should pick it up. This is very much a make sure you have the most numbers available to you type game. You're rolling dice. You need to use two sets in like can't stop style. So you're going and you're killing monsters. You're getting treasures. But it's mostly just make sure you have the most numbers available to you when you roll. Yeah, it was it was a pretty classic bog standard roll and write. I don't think I can contribute any more to that conversation. If you enjoy roll and writes, if you're always willing to try the next roll and write, by all means, this will probably do you just fine. Yeah, it did have a few clever things about you know uh, getting the treasures and unlocking some abilities, and the fact that you could sort of loop around the monsters and get more entrances to them or or more ways to get at them, and that would allow you to roll different numbers to damage them. Right. I thought that was semi-clever. Uh, sure. 
Uh, it, it's hardly particularly novel, though. It is generally the case in a lot of roll-and-writes, like many of the clever games, the order in which you fill out your boxes or you fill out your rows or you fill out your columns or what have you determine which values you can use going forward. The fact that Dungeons, Dice, and Danger represented that uh, geographically, although it, reasonably okay from a thematic perspective, didn't really add a whole heck of a lot to the roll-and-write genre. And indeed, its attempt to be thematic in some instances were just laughable, which is fine. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and be like, well, you know, the thematic integration on this roll-and-write was really poor. It, 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 it was fine. It, it got the job done. But honestly, it was fine. It got the job done is what I feel like about 99% of roll-and-writes anyway. The only ones that stand out are... Medici, the dice game, which isn't really a roll and write. It's an area majority game with some note, with some minor note taking and vengeance roll and fight, which is a, a real time scramble for murder. So honestly, it was all right. It was all right. It was, w- I, I did feel it, it kind of overstated its welcome though. It did go on a little long. Yeah. I, I would have preferred something quicker. I remember the, the clever games being quicker. Welcome to games being slightly quicker. So I'd probably for those reasons, like prefer to go back to those. Yeah, and things, ones like Cartographers gives you a little more options. You have this wide open map where you can put the shapes sort of anywhere you want or anywhere they'll fit. This is, you've pretty well locked down. Did you roll the numbers you need? No. Well, then guess what? You're taking away. Well, but as you pointed out, that's the challenge of true. the game, right? It's true. And that was Dungeons, Dice, and Danger, designed by Richard Garfield and put out by A. Lee Games. Played a game of Space Station Phoenix. This is the new release by Rio Grande Games. They seem to have established a niche for themselves, which is Euro games with a sci-fi theme. More power to them. I'm very happy to, uh, for that. Space Station Phoenix is an interesting Euro game in that you're not really building infrastructure. In point of fact, you're tearing it apart. You're building a space station and you're populating the space station. But at the start of the game, you don't really have the materials to do so. Instead, you have these ships. And so you pump the ships for the abilities. Those are kind of your actions. And eventually, you come to the point where you need a lot of metal to build to your space station. You don't have a lot of metal. But then you look at the ships that brought you here, and you figure, hmm, they're made of metal. (laughs) So you start tearing apart your ships. So the kind of actions you can do starts narrowing as as the game progresses. But those actions start triggering very powerful effects and or a whole bunch of other synergies that your space station has already established. For a reasonably dense middleweight Euro, the rules explanation is very, very simple. You explain what the ships do, they don't do a whole lot of things, and then you gesture towards the space station components and say, check your reference sheet, they do what they say they do, (laughs) then then you're good. A lot of your points at the end of the game are going to come from also populating the space station because just building the space station is enough. You need to fill it with a whole bunch of aliens and the aliens are, there are aerobic aliens that breathe and anaerobic aliens that don't and humans that stomp around in their little mech suits and so they don't care about any local atmosphere. And I thought that was a little cute. I mean, yeah, you need your range of colors. Yeah. The, the, the faintest gesture towards thematic need to put different colored cubes in different slots of your space station. It works. <laughs> And I was very impressed by the fact that Louie and Huey enjoyed as much as they do. They're, uh, a lot of Euro games bounce off of Louie in particular, uh, but everyone had a great time. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I'd very much like to play it again. It's the kind of game that will probably run longer as you're learning it, because the pacing is very much determined by the players. Aggressive play, rushing the end game, is very much apropos if you are willing to do make the hard choices, namely rip apart your fleet faster than other people. So... 
what that means is there's a greater decision space. It's not like a set. You're going to be doing 12 actions over the course of the game. You really have to be willing to make those hard trade-offs. And as the metaphor goes, throw away the ladder that brought you there. And I, those tense, difficult decisions I thought were really interesting, as well as the different setups of the space station, which could lead to different abilities. I approve. All those tracks, though, Mark. Lots of tracks. So there are four different tracks, but they all work exactly the same. And so it's not a very tracky game. And in point of fact, the reason why Huey and I lost our game was because we overfocused on the tracks. We thought the tracks were more important than they were. Louis, being the wise sage that he is, looked at the tracks and said, eh, I don't care. And instead just built his own little corner of the space station and did a great job doing it. Now, of course, as a consequence, his viable strategy was the one that had the least amount of player interaction. You can theoretically activate other people's ships. It's not usually too much in your interest. It's usually a little bit too expensive. Sometimes it makes sense, but I think the number of times we did it can be counted on the fingers of one hand over the course of our game. It is also on Board Game Arena. When I played it, it looks so... Because there are some actions that are unique to some players. And, it's true. And so you so you can jump ahead of them, and they can't take that action if you've taken it type thing. They have to wait to reactivate it. So in, I think in some cases, if you have a lot of a, the particular resource that is needed to activate other people's actions then it might be to your benefit to block it up on them and those were entire that those were exactly the circumstances in which we activated other people's ships but it happened relatively seldom because at the beginning of the game you have a fleet of your own ships and they cover all the basic actions of the game now if you are willing to aggressively decommission the ships that produce some of your actions well then that would that on the one hand would increase your incentive to go and activate other people's ships because you can't do that anymore but on the other hand, because it's the ship that you chose to decommission, it's probably an action you're not going to be relying on going forward, especially since you do so with the knowledge of what infrastructure your space station can provide for you. It was a very enjoyable Euro game. I would happily go back to it, and as I say, relatively easy to explain. So other than the absence of any serious player interaction, which of course is a common sin amongst Euros, but that's fine, I had a great time. Mark, we return to The Great Wall. This is put out by Awaken Realms. And this one did play out a little a little bit differently than our first game, because I think we sort of understood the devastation of the attacks and how we could sort of manipulate the actions in order to get the walls built a little quicker. And, and that's just not to repel the enemies. It's also just to generate you more points and how that all interacted, generating resources, building the wall, and also not taking penalties. I think all of this just worked better in the second game. It was enjoyable. I, I think it's a very solid Euro. We had some combinations of generals and advisors that initially made me concerned, but honestly, in context, they panned out relative in a relatively satisfying way. It makes me a little bit curious about some of the additional modules, but by the same token, it's one of those Kickstarter bloat features where uh, I don't know if, if anything past the base game is the sort of ideal way to play. There's just so many different modules and things that can be done. So part of me, although curious is kind of, I think, overwhelmed by the, the rest of me, which is like, just stick with what you got. You know this works. You know it's enjoyable. No need to mess around with, with Chinggis Khan or the, 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 the cooperative mode or the scenario mode or, or what have you. Uh, shame it was produced with so much plastic and so expensive in a lot of the configurations because the meeple version is full of personality. I think the visual appeal of the, the stickered meeples is just great. And I really think that, um, that a lot of people wrote it off because it was another Awakened Realms project with lots of plastic. That's exactly what happened with us. And with a more serviceable rulebook, 
I think this could have gotten a lot more attention from the intended audience, which is to say people who want a medium-heavy Euro worker placement game. Agreed. We played it with uh, four as opposed to three, and I think it, it scaled just fine, played just, like we said, much the same. And we made it right to the end this time, whereas the first time we, we got shamed into the dirt. This time we made it right to the last round and defended the wall completely, and so we could just score it by straight up points. Right, but it was still it was still tense. It was still a touch and go on a couple of situations. There were there was more than one breach in the wall, and there was more than one instance where we just barely avoided a breach, which I think is is great. That's exactly the kind of experience you want. It it, it doubles down on the focus. Namely, that a lot of your points are going to come from either building the wall or defending the wall or attacking the, the enemy troops. And that's often what I feel is missing from a lot of other Euro games. Again, like uh, Space Station Phoenix, the focus is on building the space station and populating the space station. There are points you can get from other places, but, but at the end of the day, if you focus on that, that's going to be a pretty good heuristic about where almost all your points are going to come from. The same is true of the Great Wall. And so they very much play to my preferences. That's the Great Wall, designed by... Camille Chesla, Robert Plesevich, and Lukash Lodarczyk. Played a game of hand-to-hand Wombat. Hand-to-hand Wombat is the latest offering from the Exploding Kittens crew. First off, a minor gripe. <laughs> My gripe is as follows. Early on in the rulebook, on the first page, it, it asserts, Stop. Reading rules is the worst way to learn a game. Come watch our video. And I'm like, come on, people. Sure. Offer people your rules explanation video. But asserting that it's the worst way to learn a game, now you're just you're making it personal. You're coming after me now. They want the views, Mark. I, maybe. I don't know. It reminded me of another rulebook that said that watching a rules video was the faster way to learn a game. I dispute that. Most people read far faster than they can hear someone explain a rules explanation. And that's even ignoring any amount of additional time during gameplay to look things up because you don't know where they are. Anyway, but setting that aside, that was a minor gripe. Hand-to-Hand Wombat is a semi-co-op, traitor, blind building game where everyone closes their eyes and has to build a tower, basically a a sort of Mesoamerican step pyramid using whatever coordination possible, all the while while one of them is secretly trying to interfere in their plans to build this particular pyramid. It's an interesting concept. I expressed my concern in the past about getting strangers together on open game nights and having them all close their eyes and intermingle their their sweaty, grubby uh, fingers together. So this is, I think, not the kind of thing you want to spring onto strangers, and that is fine. But in this case, everyone knew each other, and it was it was all right. You know, it was it was a very very quick five minutes because the traitorous wombat did a very poor job of concealing their presence. It was extremely evident who was messing with us, and it was a relatively simple task. Now I'm led to understand that there are modules whereby there are slightly special rules that seem to make it easier for the traitorous wombat in order to both conceal themselves and or give them more abilities to interfere with the uh, the good wombats. And uh, I do enjoy the pun. Hand-to-hand wombat is a, is a, is a fun game title. And I, I don't know how many legs this is going to have. I don't understand how you would get caught. Like, do you feel the person change yet? Or you, like, what's the game mechanism that would, would get you caught? Well, you can feel the person changing it. You can, uh, you're, so you're allowed to put your hand on top of a tower, right? Gotcha. And so I, on top of a tower, can say to somebody, okay, I need a four piece. And then that, then someone hands me a piece. I can verify it's a four and then put it on the tower, put my hand back on the tower. And uh, when somebody hands you a three piece, when you're asking for a four piece, and they're the only person that makes such a mistake, 
Well, there you go. I mean, if the timer had been shorter, I felt like the timer was actually a little bit too long. Gotcha. If there had been less time and given given somebody a little bit more cover to be like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't have t- I, I didn't have time to count the pips adequately. Eh, maybe. I don't know. It seems like a fine activity. I, gotcha. more, I didn't realize you could cover a tower. That does change everything. It does change. It does change things. Yes. Although apparently, as a as a bad wombat, you're allowed to knock over towers and even deconstruct spires. So <laughs> generally, leaving chaos in your wake. I, I, yeah, I'd be willing to try it again. It's it's probably worth five minutes of your time. I don't know if it's worth ten. <laughs> we'll see. I assume that's what you'd be doing. I thought I didn't think just handing the wrong pieces would be the. The traders thing I thought it would be deconstructing, or even just put, and, or even just putting the wrong pieces when no one's paying attention. That's or, exactly, yeah, yeah. That uh, look, all of those things are options for the traitorous wombat. Many are the tricks in their in their tool bag. And those hand to hand wombat designed by Matthew Inman, Elon Lee, and Corey O'Brien, put up this year by Exploding Kittens. We streamed transmissions last Saturday. We stream every Saturday at twelve thirty p.m. Eastern. This is designed by Adam West and put up by Crosscut Games. So what you're doing in transmissions are is you're playing a card and you're activating these four robots that are on the board. One goes slow, two go medium, and one goes very fast. And the, when you move them, they're going to stop at an area on the map and you're going to be able to activate that area. So you're either building this pipe network or you're collecting items to go into robots or you're upgrading your robots or you're collecting resources in order to buy all of these things. Now, the one problem is that sometimes because you have a limited storage, you're collecting these goods to buy a particular uh, item. And by the time it gets either around to you, uh, someone else had already bought it or you don't have the right cards to activate the robot you need to get to that item buying spot. So the first time I played it was only with two players. So it didn't seem to be that big of a problem. It seemed to be a little bit more of a roadblock for some people when we played with the four, the full four compliment but the art is very adorable i still think it played fairly smoothly and still everyone very much enjoyed it transmissions finally for me to round off my weekend of solo gaming i played legacy of dragonhold i've been meaning to come back to this for quite some time i was immediately reminded of why i initially put it down because the thing that really made me fall in love with legacy of dragonhold was despite the fact that it said in taranoth which i assume was some sort of concession to the publisher or some sort of necessity by virtue of the fact that it was put up by ffg it was a small story of small scope with actual stakes nonetheless and with lots of well fleshed out characters And the reason why I stopped was because without going into spoilers, there was a classic fantasy thing that was happening that expanded the scope, kind of undercut that overall message. I'm like, that's it. I'm done for now. And then I put it aside and didn't come back to it. But I should have given the game more credit because Legacy of Dragonhold, despite the fact that that thing very much happened and it kind of changed the scope from what I wanted it to be most of the time, it still was telling it with a degree of maturity, subtlety, and detail that made it an enjoyable experience despite the somewhat change of scope. And it really is the writing that makes all the difference in things like this. And also, the game system knows to get out of your way. It's the case that it's a very, very rules-minimal system, and that's perfect for the fact that it just gets out of the way of the narrative. There's no grinding attritional nonsense. The gamey elements serve to give context to your character and to give texture to what's going on rather than to impose some sort of artificial clock because they figure it has to be there because it's a game. And this was primarily designed by Nikki Valens, and there's also additional work done by Daniel Clark, Tim Flanders, Annie Vandermeer, Mitsoda, and Greg Spiritus. Unfortunately, there have been no follow-ups from the system, 
I would, however, like to mention a strange thing that happened on social media. I mentioned that my sort of ideal game design might be a solo design with the collaboration of Nikki Valens and David Thompson. Apparently, both David Thompson and Nikki Valens are into that. So if any publisher is at all interested, <laughs> you can reach out to Nikki Valens and David Thompson. They're, they are, are potentially open, according to what they say on social media, to doing such a thing. And I, for one, would buy 20 copies. That might be an exaggeration. Plus or minus 19 copies <laughs> I would purchase. But suffice to say, I am back into Legacy of Dragonholt. I was immediately sucked back into, into the story. I was immediately sucked back into the characters. I was immediately sucked back into the overall game format. And I think it would be a tragedy if this style of game, if this sort of system, if this kind of approach were not replicated over and over and over again. I want to see Nikki Valens and a, and a team do this kind of story for every possible setting, especially ones that are more interesting than Terranoth, because, oh my goodness, Terranoth, what a generic fantasy snooze fest by itself. But such is the talent of this team that they made even Terranoth interesting. Good for them. Amazing Herculean feat, almost difficult to believe. And that is Legacy of Dragonhold. Lastly for me, still playing games on Board Game Arena. I don't think the check's coming, Mark. I don't think they're going to so send not, it to you. I'm not going. I'm not going to really talk about them, but I will say you're such an incompetent sellout. You can't even sell out properly. These games are coming out every day. They've got this new sort of like chess thing still going on. So tons of games constantly coming out. Been playing Barrage, Blood Rage, Agricola, Arctic Scavengers. Tons of games. If you ever find a problem not being able to get games in, check out Board Game Arena. It's a, a platform that's very easy to use. Very friendly. Everyone is more than happy to help you get through games that you don't understand. The interface, Board Game Arena. I've only gamed with randos, I think, once or twice on Board Game Arena, but I have to say that they're, the, the class of rando there for most games seemed to be a reasonably good class of rando. Now, for some games, my understanding is that it is exceptionally toxic, but <laughs> what else is new? It's the internet. Yes, they do have a, a tournament scene there, so I'm sure it's not as... I haven't even touched it, so I have no idea, but I'm assuming oh, that, that's, it would be terrible. Well, it's just there are some games, uh, Hanabi apparently especially, if you're not playing the way you're supposed to, then everyone's just going to get mad. Oh my. Yes, well, anyway. So those are the game we games we played last week. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate. What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, on to the news and why it doesn't matter. 
First off, just a reminder that So Very Wrong About Games is going to be at the Shut Up and Sit Down Expo this year. Shucks is coming back to Vancouver September 30th to October the 2nd. We are going to be there. We are going to be doing things, at the very least playing games. Come and see us. Things. It'll be things. Things will happen. Things and or stuff. I can commit to one of those, possibly both. Oh, yeah, it's a week out of time. I might be doing stuff and things. Wow. Slow down. Mark, we made a video. We did. We did a Stars of Acarius prelude review. Check out our YouTube channel and check out the video. Link will be available in the episode notes. I mentioned before that Gordon Kalea is very, very good at framing small combat encounters and crafting mechanisms that are appropriate for that format and very engaging. His next design is going to be Fateforge Chronicles of Khan, which <clears throat> unfortunately is a campaign game and also unfortunately is based on a French RPG system, which I know very little about. Uh, but promisingly, the RPG system seems to be framed around the idea of a universally beloved leader who is possibly up to no good, and so you're actually investigating someone who's overarchingly popular. A little bit of intrigue. I can get behind that. But if he's able to successfully string together in a campaign system 30-minute combat encounters that are as satisfying as some of the combat mechanisms he's already shown off in his various Vengeance versions, I could really, really get behind that. So we'll be getting an early preview copy uh, sometime in the near future of Fate Forge Chronicles of Khan. Look forward to our discussion of that. Mark, we love Undaunted. There's going to be a new Undaunted Battle of Britain. So we really like the space combat in Stars of Acarius. This is now going to be dogfighting. And it looks sounds more likely we'll use the same sort of system. I'm very interested to see whether it's just now activate that plane or is it going to be uh, different ways to activate the planes with the cards. I'd like to see how it's going to be done. It'd be very interesting that if it was like a sort of card movement system, as opposed to, you know, while you get to move how that plane particularly moves, we'll see how it goes. Looking forward to seeing it. Battle of Britain, same designer. What's his name again? I've forgotten it. David. David Thompson. Thompson and let's, not, let's not leave out Trevor Benjamin. And Trevor Benjamin. It is important to note that despite the fact that David Thompson is the common through line for all these brilliant designs, he does have co-designers on all of them. And so it, it's, a, it's an error I commit all the time. But Trevor Benjamin has done amazing work in his own right. His solo stuff is also great. David Thompson and Trevor Benjamin. It's got a badass looking sick on the cover. I will buy any game with a badass looking sick on the cover. It's going to be a reprint slash redevelopment of Ascending Empires, the bizarre dexterity slash 4X hybrid game, which at the time was somewhat saddled by component issues. Originally, there was a puzzle board consisting of nine different cardboard segments that had to be pieced together by interlocking puzzle tabs, which wasn't perfect and would lead to some lift and some lips. And when you're designing a, a flicking game, that can be a problem. Now, at the time, way back when, some people decided to flex their DIY craft and made beautiful wooden boards that were one piece, and then, of course, you had to varnish it properly and, and make sure that the surface texture was okay and drill out the holes for the planets. Not having such skill, of course, and now board gaming components having increased in sophistication, neoprene to the rescue. And so this new edition of Ascending Empires published by Kids, is going to be called the Zenith Edition, and they promise that it's going to have a neoprene mat, which is the obvious solution now. And I'm looking forward to seeing what they're doing with it. I've always enjoyed Ascending Empires. It's a very, very interesting hybrid design, and we love hybrid flicking designs. And they promise some redevelopment and some graphic redesign, and so I'm looking forward to that. Look forward to it next year. Ascending Empires Zenith Edition. On the cute factor, Mark, there's a game coming out called Hickory Dickory. So it's another <laughs> another uh, Gray Fox... No. Pla it's another plaid hat games, the same people that do mice and mystics and the rest. So cute mice, very adorable. This big 
clock in the middle of the board or in the middle, in the middle of the playing area looks like it's going to be very light, which is nothing wrong with that. But take a look at the pictures. It is very interesting. Hickory Dickory. A new edition of Spirit Island is going to be making it to big box stores. So I initially had a moment of, wait, what? When I read this, but then I remembered, wait a minute, it's 2022. Gloomhaven is in big box stores. So there's going to be a Target exclusive version of Spirit Island called New Horizons, featuring five new low complexity spirits. And don't let anyone sleep on low complexity spirits, because after all, hashtag best spirit is a low complexity spirit, shadows flicker like flame. I'm very much looking forward to trying the new spirits. We are fortunate in that we live close enough to the border that we can make a run to Target, as the locals call it. But sadly, other people are going to have to wait a couple of years to wait out the Target exclusivity. They're making a number of component concessions, so no plastic for the invaders, uh, no wood for the Dahan, all cardboard chips and so forth. But the game system is purported to be the same and thus cross-compatible with the remainder of the Spirit Island line. I am very curious how well it's going to do in mass market. Uh, it's a brilliant game, so if, if it's merely a function of its quality, then absolutely it'll do well. I don't even really know how well Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion did in the broader mass market, but as a, a companion to a hobby game, it was fabulous, and I suspect Spirit Island New Horizons will be very much the same. So I think it'll do that. well, because in the, spirit, in the target setting, it's going to be impulse buying, and it's got a great name, and it's got a great cover, so I think it will do well. Hmm, interesting. I love the art of Spirit Island, and indeed there's a lot of discussion on, Spirit, uh, on online about the art of Spirit Island. I think their covers are the weakest aspect of the presentation overall. And indeed, the cover for New Horizons, uh, you know, it's not going to make me want to start a thread on Board Game Geek about how bad the cover art is, but it appears to be a whole bunch of different art assets just copied and pasted without any sort of, like the perspective is a little bit off and, and, and some of the shading doesn't quite work. It, I'm not particularly picky about these things, but to my eye, it looks a little bit strange. I don't know. I, I hope you're right. As I say, if it were just a function of its quality, I think that more people need to be exposed to it. And it is definitely a, a pleasant inversion of standard colonialist tropes. And I think the more, the earlier and more frequently we can insert those kind of subvert, subversive ideas about what it is to represent colonialism in, in games is for the better. But all that I know is that I'm going to get five new spirits this year, and I can't wait. <laughs> Well, Mark, we both know that there's just not enough Dune games out. Oh, dear So Simon has said that they're, they also want to put their foot in the water. They will be No water. Out. Walker, don't, there's Sorry. no water. You don't, don't they, you they want to dip their, their toes in the spice. Yes. And they are going to put out their own Dune War for Arrakis. It will be another giant Kickstarter plastic extravaganza, I am sure. No doubt. Is crowdfunding still a thing? <laughs> Shipping has bludgeoned it half to death. No kidding. That is the news and why it doesn't matter. Now onto our feature game, which is Stroganov. Stroganov was designed by Andreas Stedding. Andreas Stedding is perhaps best known for his 2009 release Hansa Teutonica, but we here at So Very Wrong About Games are also fans of his 2014 release The Stouffer Dynasty and 2018's Gugong. Now, I will merely note that my preferred version of the terrible Stroganov joke is pointing out that the Stouffer Dynasty led to Stroganov. However, I will uh, share the best version of the common joke as relayed by Efka online. He said, I have no beef with this game. The worst iteration of the joke was presented by our very own Worm Boy. Worm Boy looked at the board and said, where's the beef? And then after a moment of no laughter, he said, you know, because of beef Stroganov. 
managing to step on his own terrible joke. Good job, Wormboy. Anyway, Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in Stroganoff? Well, playing Stroganoff, you're constantly wondering why this isn't a Pokemon-themed game. <laughs> one. One does. One wonders one, that. One might wonder. <laughs> so in Stroganoff, you're going for optimal actions, because you might not have the proper skins you need, or access to the King's Favor or the Yurt Token. But not to worry, opportunity still exists. You maybe will pick up horses, or for future turns, you might streak ahead into un- into the unknown lands of Siberia. So people will sing songs of your courage, but only not only that, but it will let you go sooner in the next turn. You can build outposts to increase your options. All of these things are available in Stroganoff. And if all if all that fails, Mark, just kill more animals. I'm sure they'll be useful later. <laughs> okay. Should we start with the theme? Because I'd just like to, to mention this straight off the top. Yes, let's do that. Okay. I don't have any problem with games representing hunting. There's a lot of hunting. You kill a lot of animals in this game. I personally have no, no problem with that. I was about to say I have no beef with that. Other people might. That's one thing. The more prevalent issue is, and I commented on this one when I first played it, I guess it, it counts as progress when we're going past the traditionally Western Eurocentric visions, hagiographies of colonialization, you know, valorizing the conquistadors or glamorizing the British Empire. And now we're doing it for Tsarist Russia because the Tsarist Russian advance into, into Siberia, which is what this game represented, was an incredibly bloody and vicious affair. In other words, it was colonialism. And indeed, the Cossacks, who you you play as Cossacks in the actual game, were responsible for lots and lots of terrible, terrible things. Indeed, not to paint with too broad a brush, when I, with what little I know about history, hear about irregular cavalry units, as a random case in point, the one established by our very first prime minister, I get nervous because they tend to be associated with things like war crimes and ethnic cleansing and terrible, terrible atrocities. So none of this is represented in Stroganov. It's glossed over. It's the standard Fisterian kind of, well, it's, it's the subtle Fister. It's the unsated Fister. It's the presenting just the, the nice happy one where the only things that died were mink and foxes and the occasional bear. But figured it was worth flagging that. Now onto the game, which is a breeze to teach, I think, due to the fact that the entire rule book is on the board. They got the turn summary there. They have the action selections there. They have the end of round summary there. All of the bonus actions you can do are all printed on the board. The final scoring is there. And they have the iconography to back all of that up. All the different actions you can do are all listed on all the tokens. So once people see what's going on and what everything means, I think it's very easy to to get this game going, even with the complexity that it is. Yeah, it does a very good job managing the information flow because I commented when when we first played this, I read the rule book in advance and I did the same the standard thing that I always do. I read the rule book without setting out the components in front of me. 99 times out of 100 this is just fine. In the case of a game like Stroganov, it's a mistake because the rule book goes into the various different basic actions you can do and then the advanced actions you can do and then the circumstances under which you can trigger a bonus action and what that invariably means. And I was looking at this and figuring this is going to be a nightmare because I, I was not able to retain any of it. I didn't have to retain any of it because, as you say, it's all on the board. The iconography is consistent. The iconography is clean. The iconography is e- easily legible from a distance. And the only areas of ambiguity 10 minutes into your first game are going to be the special favor of the czar cards. Like, like, like a lot of medium weight euros, there are these recipes that you can fulfill, but in this case, they give you special powers for the rest of the game or a one-time bonus. All the ones that give you special powers for the rest of the game, some of them you might have to look up, 
But that's one element in a sea of information presentation. And the rest of it, I think, is marvelously well done and marvelously clean. Yeah, the only other glitch that sometimes you get is people don't understand how the action works. You get two free actions and then one third action if you pay for it. And then how you pay for it or what ones are free or which ones you can choose for some reason gets people muddled up a little bit. Partially because of the arbitrariness of the theme. It's like, oh, you're, you're in mink territory. If you want to do an extra action there, you have to pay a mink. Oh, you're in fox territory. If you want to do an extra action there, it's a fox. And this doesn't make any sense, but it serves to vary the economy game to game just enough to make things surprisingly dynamic. Well, you could look at it as that this particular territory has a high demand for that particular pelt. So that's why you need to pay with that particular pelt. Sure. All the people that we're killing that are not represented in the game. On the subject of pelts, <laughs> let's just quickly go over the pelts because it's very, it's a very, the main part of the game. It's the main really, resource, yeah. Because you're using it to pay for bonus actions. Like you just said, the, the czar's wish cards, you need it to fulfill it, to flip them over. You need to spend a lot of furs to claim the landscape tiles. And you have this whole trophy track where you need furs to go down that as well. So it's like you said, the central uh, resource of the game. And the great thing is, despite the fact that it's the central resource of the game, it, acquiring the pelts is one of the most transparent elements of the game, and it's a very enjoyable and very easy process to do. At the start of your turn, you have to move your Cossack along this track, penetrating deeper into Siberia. And this, in turn, influences what actions you can take. It also, in turn, influences what pelts are available where you are. The geography of the action selection is very, very well done. It's not an elaborate sort of, you know, wandering around discursive kind of thing. It's just a single track that you go down. But it is interesting to trade off, well, I want to be in this area because I want to snag this card. But on the other hand, it doesn't have the pelts that I want. And or I can't afford to buy extra actions there. Or I'm not rich enough to be able to do the expensive things in that area, etc., etc. And so those trade-offs I, I find endlessly diverting. And at the end of the day, when in doubt, if you're a new player, you, you can't really figure out what's going on, or you're just too far away, and you're just too poor, go and just grab some pelts. It's fine. You'll use them later. They will come in handy. You won't regret that going forward. It's not necessarily the most efficient action, but I do appreciate it when games of this complexity and with this many different things you can do have a sort of default easy thing that's simple to comprehend. Yeah, or just throw horses at the problem as well. It's got this <laughs> yeah. other resource, which is horses. And I love the fact that there's two different ways to use them. Like you said, you have to move at the beginning of your turn, and you can throw some horses there to move further. Or as a free action, you can throw a bunch of horses and take goods from the market. Absolutely. So horses and coins buy you flexibility. Pelts are your primary currency. And the rest is just about action efficiency, making the most of the actions you have available, knowing when to buy the extra ones, etc. And again, when uh, talking about Euros, as I've mentioned several times already in this episode, one of the things I appreciate is when the scoring has a little bit of focus. I don't think Storganov has a whole heck of a lot of focus scoring, but you can simplify things to say buying terrain tiles is a good source of lots of points. It's not necessarily always going to be the dominant strategy. And indeed, you can largely ignore that element if you pursue other things aggressively. But all else being equal, I do appreciate it when there is something that you can point to and say, well, this, this is a good good way to get lots of points. Yeah, there's, I think there's three main ways, right? Like you said, there's the landscape tiles, there's putting your outposts out, and then there's going down your trophy track. It's your own personal board, and there's an asymmetric side, which you can play, which makes that whole trophy track different. You're spending pelts. You're moving down the track, not only getting like bonus resources and other things, you're also getting more and more victory points as you go down the track. Yeah, there feels like there's a lot to do. 
which is weird because every time I sit down to play Stroganov, I find I keep forgetting the variety of things that are available to do. And I think part of that is because you don't really have to remember between games what's going on because, again, the information presentation is so good. It's like, oh, yeah, there are yurts. Yurts are awesome. Okay, I'll go take this yurt. And it's very simple, very clear how to do it. It's got the icon that indicates how you get it. There you go. You've got a yurt. And I, you know, the how it interacts with the song track and getting more horses and banners and all that stuff. There's a surprising number of things, but it all boils down to a surprisingly approachable format. Yeah, and I love the diversity where you put out your outposts. We talked about the outposts already, and because normally you can do uh, the advanced actions where your czar, where you're sorry, where your Cossack Cossack is. But if you've put out these outposts during the game, you could get to do some of those actions there. So you sort of giving yourself more options. And not only on top of that, it's also worth a lot of scoring at the end. Yeah. And to put out that outpost near the, the edge of the board, you have to work for it. It is, there's, there's not as much time as you would think. And getting to that last section to either put out that outpost or to make use of that kind of pelt or what have you, whatever action you want to do near the end, you have to work to do it. It requires a little bit of planning, a little bit of effort, and it's not just going to be handed to you. So despite the fact that there are always easy and smooth things to do, there are enough rough edges in the game in terms of trade-offs, not in terms of, of rules necessarily, although there are some, but in terms of trade-offs that you have to work for those kinds of goals. Yeah, that is a little bit of a rough edge because it does have this weird sort of two-step process to get an outpost on. You have to, you know, take it from out of the game, get it on your board, and now then you can put it out on onto the main board. Yeah, and it is somewhat counterintuitive. The expensive part, the slightly more difficult part, in my experience, is having the outpost available to be placed, putting it in your supply. Actually putting it on the board, i.e. building it, that's cheap and easy. (laughs) And intuitively, that doesn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense. But then again, overall, the thematic integration of Storganov is not great. No, it's true. That's why it'd be much better as a Pokemon game. So why, why do? But, uh, sorry, going back. Why do you think it may, would it would make more sense for me to have to pay five Squirtles to get this terrain tile as opposed no, to well, having no, drop down you're, you're two ca- bears? You're capturing the the Pokemon. When that part I understand. Bears. Rather than and hunting you, a small you, animal, you're, you're trading them with 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 you know the gyms and oh, all those different sections of okay. different gyms. Okay, and then oh, it's all sorts of good stuff. Okay, no, 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 okay, I understand, but. I do think that the game would lose uh, th- that. I do think that Stroganov would lose something in that transition, and that is honestly, I I think Stroganov is one of the best looking Euro games of the past few years. Agreed. The art style is again inappropriately pastoral, given how <laughs> brutal the <laughs> the expansion was, but it's just so lovely. It looks like again, it's selling you this this incredibly revisionist fantasy about how there's just this lovely expanse that's largely uninhabited and no, you know, there's plenty of room for everybody. And we're just, we're just riding off with our horses to go capture some animals. Galloping across the vast wilderness. Steppies and, and, and and other, yeah, yeah, it's just, uh, it really is visually appealing. I like the cover. I like the board, despite the fact that it has this information, it manages to be lovely. Honestly, I think that Stroganov's presentation, both in terms of the board and in terms of the iconography, is one of the best rebuttals to Eno Tool that I've ever seen. This is true. What I love about Stroganov is the puzzle. There's a great puzzle to figure out when it's your turn, because there's so many options like we've talked about. You can use coins with a fur to make it into any fur you want. You can throw horses at the problem. So there's all sorts of different ways to get to what you want. You just need to figure out how to get it. You know, you grab you grab the, 
the city action lets you go down the your trophy board, which which gets you a coin, which you spend to get a fur. So now you can get the landscape tile. So there's there's this really neat combo puzzle system that you can figure out on your turn if you're willing to put in the work. I agree. The trade offs are engaging and enjoyable. Pulling the different levers is is impressive. Uh, there is of course standard bugbear of many a euro we've talked about how the theme is is pretty bad and 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 is a hagiography of of terrible things the other standard bugbear is player interaction now there's slightly more player interaction in stroganov than there is in a true multiplayer solitaire experience because as i as we've already flagged one of the most lucrative actions is buying landscape tiles the cost of a landscape tile goes down as it is being hunted and so while you're engaging in either looking at terrain tiles to purchase or what pelts to go hunt, you always have in the back of your mind the fact that you're influencing the overall costs for everybody else down the line. Because seldom is it the case that you can hunt a terrain tile into cheapness and then buy it yourself. Usually you have to be careful and look at what other people are doing. You know what pelts they're going after much of the time. And if you're behind them, you can get some sense of where they're going to be going. And so if you're looking for bargains, there can be some satisfier player, satisfying player interaction in that context. Yeah, there's definitely, there's, there's this, it's like it's the same sort of thing that are in all these games where I got that thing before you did, but it's spread across the whole board, right? It's not only in, in the pelts or the landscape tiles and the yurts and the king's wish card, the, sorry, the czar's wish cards. So there's so many different pools where that takes place. I thought, I find it very interesting. The one part of player interaction that, that struck me as slightly more satisfying was the idea of pushing further along the track into Siberia. Because the further you are, uh, number one, you get to go first, which is great for being able to snag the pelts faster than anybody else, as, as you've you've alluded to. And number two, at the end of the round, whoever's furthest along gets some bonus song points because they talk of your bravery. Because between rounds, your position is reset back all the way to the start of the board. And so if you manage to push all the way back, not only will you benefit from the turn or you'll get a nice little benefit at the end of the turn. I found it very interesting that in our last play of Stroganoff as well. I don't know, maybe you, you know, you obviously saw it, but did you find it interesting? There was that market gamble going on. <laughs> yes, right? a little bit. Which never happened in our previous it's games, true. right? It's true. So what people were doing is as soon as you buy a pelt from the market, it is instantly filled again and people needed certain pelts. So they would be buying pelts from the market in hopes that drawn from the bag would be the pelts they would need. It was just this interesting thing that sort of just propped up. Like I said, okay, well, I, I need a certain thing. Someone had just taken the pelt I needed. It's okay. Well, I'll just get the market to cycle a little bit. And then everyone started to jump in on that track. <laughs> it was very interesting to watch. It was a bizarre Hail Mary. I think it was partially driven by the fact that at several instances, the market had an unusual glut of threes and nearly nothing else. I can't remember what animal corresponds to the three. I think it's the Charmander. I'm not sure. And so as a consequence, nobody needed the threes. And so people were like, eh. as you say, literally throwing horses at the problem. Horses and coins are the way you buy flexibility. And so if you're not able to get the exact thing you need, you might as well throw horses at the problem. And some people were effectively playing pelt roulette with what came out of the bag. Yeah, it was is, a strange phenomenon. And to get, I just want to go back to the king, the czar's wish cards. <laughs> you keep thinking it's I the don't king. Know why, yeah. Anyway, I, I, go back to the It czar's, comes from Caesar Walker. The czar's wish cards are very interesting as well because they give you sort of like that constant income, right? Where you get a coin every winter phase or you get to get an extra action. And I really like how that works because they all trigger in different times. Anyway. 
I was thinking during my early plays of Stroganov, I was thinking that those cards were going to be, you know, the primary purpose because so in so many euros where there are cards where it's like gather these resources or cash in these resources and get points, that tends to be a major focus of it. And I was frustrated a little bit with that in mind during my early turns because it was so hard to satisfy my starting wish card. But it turns out that the wish cards are just a slight level of gravy and more for the ability that it gives you than actual points. In my experience, you don't satisfy a whole heck of a lot of them over the course of the game. You might satisfy just one or two, and that's okay if you're focused on other things. And so it was just, it just, it was counter to my expectations when initially approaching Stroganov, that's all. Uh, what I want to see with those cards are, because halfway through the game, we wiped the board and we put out new tiles and stuff, which, you know, that I love, graduated decks. And for the Czar's cards, it's all about endgame scoring. I just haven't seen that utilized enough because usually by the end of the game, everyone is very low on the pelts. And how how Czar cards work is you need a whole bunch of pelts. You don't have to spend them. You just have to have them. So I would like to see that sort of manifest itself a little bit more. Well, I, I don't know that that would really be viable. I think that would be one venue where if you were planning to really exploit that game system, you might be apt to come back disappointed because, for two reasons. Number one, you can't really build towards an endgame condition that is that might only show up during near the end of the game. And so that just seems more like happenstance than anything else. So if it were too much a part of the game, that could just be too wild a, a, a lucky draw. And the market for these cards, for the Czar's Wish cards, doesn't fluctuate much. Because people don't tend to take many actions because, again, it's not a primary. I wouldn't say it's a central part of of your scoring strategies. So as a consequence, you're not going to see a large volume of these cards go through. Now, that leads to play-by-play variety. But by the same token, it just means that I don't, I don't think you're, you're really going to be able to see that, ma- that come to fruition the way you want it to. We'll see. Like, I, I think I might even try it. Like, just build up pelts. And then when that mid-game hits, just go down the whole line and just grab all of those cards and see if it's enough of a scoring thing. Or are you going to lose out on this uh, all of those points at the beginning of the game? Hmm, possibly. So to sum up for me, Stroganov is a beautiful, a visually beautiful, well-presented mid- middleweight Euro game by a designer who's done a number of very excellent Euro games. I really like the action efficiency. I really like the way the overall economy works. I like some of the, the risk-reward dynamics and the tense trade-offs. Stroganov I find very enjoyable. Not his best work, I mean, but if you've designed Hansa Teutonica, I don't know that anyone is ever going to be able to say. Yeah, you set the bar pretty high. You set the bar pretty, exactly. When you start off with those kinds of standards, it's going to be very, very rough to exceed that. But I will happily play Stroganov again. I find it a delightful experience. I will be keeping Stroganov. And I love how you will not have to touch the rule book as opposed to, you know, maybe looking up a couple of cards. But you'll be able to put it out and teach the game because it's all on the board. Great game. Small Coda about the death of crowdfunding. <laughs> if you have the retail release and feel like you've missed out on the quote-unquote deluxe Kickstarter exclusive version, don't. It's not that impressive. No, it was not. It was not worth the extra three months waiting for it. <laughs> definitely, definitely not. And that was Stroganov, and that will do it for this week. Thank you very, very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find all our contact information at sowronggames.com slash contact. We read everything you send us, and we will get back to you if we can. You can find us on all manner of venues. Thank you again for spending some time with us. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace!
You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigman. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.